The choir gets up, they sing Just As I Am over and over again. And Billy says, if you pray the prayer, come down the front. And he says his famous line, the buses will wait. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I thought, you know what? Every non-believer that night came on a church bus. The non-believer at a Billy Graham crusade was a churched non-believer. Then I thought, yeah, I remember when I went to Sunday school in my local Baptist church, half the kids were non-believers from non-believing parents. That's just what non-believers did. They were in the church soccer team. They went to the church holiday program. They were in the church Sunday school program. So one day as an adult, they find themselves on a church bus going to a Billy Graham crusade. But I thought the non-believer today is not in a church bus. They're unchurched. So this is, and we need a new playbook. Almost every Christian that I know desperately desires to share Jesus with their friends and with their family, but A, does not know how, and B, doesn't really want to become the type of person that non-believers dread talking to. And I personally think that there's a way to do it without uh, coming across that way. But the best way that I know how to tell you about it is by introducing you to today's guest, Sam Chan. Hey, welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. Um, I'm super excited that you've jumped in today for this one, um, the second one of 2021. Uh, and I, I had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, Sam is a tremendously funny um, but like brilliant guy. Uh, he actually is a medical doctor who went and got his PhD in theology from Trinity Evangelical, um, not too far away from where I grew up. Sam said that he spent a considerable amount of time at Cubs games, but then when the ticket prices got too high, went to the South Side and became a Sox fan, uh, which anybody who knows me knows that that is, uh, is, is egregious. Um, we're Northsiders here on the podcast. And, uh, but that aside, he was so fun, so generous with how he went about talking about sharing his faith and teaching others to share his faith. Sam, uh, along with his credentials is also just, uh, becoming more and more of a prolific author and speaker. He's a speaker for the city Bible forum in Sydney, Australia. If you couldn't tell from his accent, he is Australian. Our second Australian guest on the show, um, has a tremendous blog called espresso theology and has written a few books. And his most recent book is, is called how to talk about Jesus without being that guy. And you know exactly what I mean by that guy. None of us, I think none of us want to admit that we secretly wish we were that guy in all reality because when we say that guy who we're really talking about is somebody who just like unabashedly desires to share Jesus with everybody they know but you know not everybody needs to be that guy not everybody needs to be that way most of us just need to learn how to share the gospel in our everyday normal conversations and to create more everyday normal conversations and Sam teaches us how to do that better than almost anybody I've ever talked to. And so, so I'm excited uh, to get to that with you. One side note though, interestingly enough, about one minute before I got on the call with Sam, I was told by a close friend of mine who I pastor with about the events at uh, the Capitol building. 
in uh, Washington, D.C. And I know that there's a lot of non-American listeners to this show, but I think all of us are aware of those events and everything leading up to it. And even after a few days now, the things that have followed up. And I just want to encourage you, as I think I have in the past during this tumultuous time here in the United States, as we all uh, try and figure out how to walk as Christians in this season, um, I encourage you to walk wisely, um, listen to each other. Uh, don't, don't put arguments in people's mouths. Um, don't be quick to make accusations. And if truly you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, I do think that we will love our enemies. I do think that we will pray for our leaders, um, who are over us, no matter what political party they're over. And so, um, no matter where you stand politically, I just encourage you to seek the face of God this morning or this afternoon, this evening. And maybe you're listening to this 10 years from now and you're laughing because you're like, man, Jeremy had no idea what was going to happen. Let me tell you, I used to feel like I was pretty adept at, at think at being able to, to see kind of what was going to happen. I'm not a fantastic chess player, but I felt, I used to feel like I could see three or four moves ahead culturally. And right now, I don't feel like I can see the next move. Right now, I don't feel like I can see what's about to happen. Every day is a surprise to me. And that's been dramatically humbling. Maybe it's been humbling for you too. Maybe it's been scary. Maybe it's provided you some moments of um, just really thinking about, oh goodness, what control do we have over the world? And I just hope that it's brought you to a good place. And if it's brought you to this podcast, I'm thankful because I do believe that listening to the conversations that we have on this show, the ones with people like Sam, the ones with the crew, uh, they're good. Uh, they're, they're good for us. Just speaking openly and honestly, I encourage you, if you haven't listened to the episode from last week with, with John on uh, to go listen to it. He taught me a lot about just, you know, what is it like to be African-American in the United States right now as a Christian? Um, got some really good feedback from that episode. Got some people who um, were conflicted over some of the things John said. But uh, I typically, my response to that is, hey, the struggle's good. The struggle is good. So struggle with it. But don't ignore it. And so I'm excited for today. I'm excited for you to listen to Dr. Sam Chan. That's not just some, I mean, he's a PhD, but he's also a medical doctor. So let's let's really put some respect on his name. But Dr. Sam Chan, our Christian thinker for the day. Let's do it. My next guest is the Espresso Theologian and a public speaker for City Bible Forum in Australia. His blog, Espresso Theology, gives you a short, quick buzz of theology by taking you from your world to Jesus in 60 seconds. He has a PhD in theology and is a medical doctor. He is a global citizen, born in Hong Kong, growing up and lives in Australia, studied medicine at the University of Sydney, and did his PhD in theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. His book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, won Christianity Today's Book Award for 2019, and his recent book seeks to help non-professional Christians, as he says, share their faith with friends and family, and is aptly titled, How to Talk About Jesus Without Becoming That Guy. It's my honor and privilege to have on the show, 
Dr. Sam Chan. Sam, th thank you so much for taking time to be a part of this. Oh, Jeremy, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, as we were talking in, in pre-show, um, I came across your work, uh, really the first book, which is essentially a textbook, the, the one evangelism in a skeptical world. Um, but then when I had seen that you had, uh, done this, done this work and then titled it the way you had that it took my attention and, and we were mentioning Mike bird, the two Australians I've had on this show, you and Mike have this, uh, wonderful sense of humor where you take topics that many other Christians treat very seriously and you guys utilize very much the tongue in cheek mentality. What, what brought you to title the book, how to talk about Jesus, but not be that guy. I think it's just something that I had a gut feeling about, like why don't Christians evangelize? It's in our DNA to want all our friends and family to hear about Jesus but why don't we do it? And suddenly I realized, well, we live in a society which I call an unofficial de facto closed society where you're not meant to talk about Jesus. You're not meant to talk about religion. So the instant you do that, you become that guy, you become that yeah. uncle at the Thanksgiving yeah. dinner. And I remember the Gospel Coalition asked me to give a breakout presentation last year in April on evangelism. And I thought, well, what can I title the seminar? So I thought cheekily, why don't I call it how to talk about Jesus without becoming that mm. guy? And that title alone packed out the room. I think it was 200, 300 people standing room only. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is, this is a cultural moment. This has cut, touched a cultural nerve in Christians. Like we all want to talk about Jesus, but we know we can't without being socially inappropriate. Yeah, it was it was so funny because I was telling somebody who I work with about interviewing you and I said, yeah, we'll have to, you know, you'll have to read the book. And I told him the title and it was like, he automatically knew what you meant by that guy. And I think most people who live in cultures where they're privileged to be able to evangelize, like we are in the US and you are in, the, in, in Australia, is we, we know what that guy means. Um, but just for, you know, for anybody listening, maybe, you know, who isn't as influenced by Christian culture as you and I probably are, when you said how to talk about Jesus without becoming that guy, when you pictured, quote unquote, that guy or that girl, what kind of things came to your mind that you think might most people might want to avoid being? Yeah, well, I guess you have your official closed countries where you mm -hmm. just cannot talk about Jesus, otherwise you will be arrested. But we're in that funny culture where we're post-Christian, post-Christendom, and we also have grown up in a, in a post-enlightenment culture where we have a very strict public-private secular-sacred divide where we're only meant to talk about the weather, the weekend, and the sports. But the instant you bring up politics, not that that stopped many people, mm -hmm. but as the, the instant you bring up religion, you've become that guy. And it's almost like there is no socially appropriate way of talking about religion. And maybe that has made some well-meaning Christians look for socially inappropriate ways to talk about Jesus. And I guess that would be that uncle who corners you mm -hmm. at the Thanksgiving dinner and then just monologues at you well-meaningly, but for yeah. 20 minutes, you can't get a word in or they've got some pre-memorized spill that they feel like they just got to download uh, and dump on you. Just an information mm -hmm. download, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's so, 
relatable everything you just said and and you you made the point of saying that oftentimes that person is well-meaning. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to make someone feel like somebody who's been devoted to evangelism a long time is, is, uh, is somehow malicious because obviously that's not the case, but you know, you said, you said something about the doubt, you know, the, the speech or the monologue that someone might have memorized. And I know, um, growing up in and around Christian culture, I've, I've been coached before I, I you know, I've even to a certain degree, coached other people like well if you remember this and this and this and this and it can sometimes turn into a almost like a one-sided shakespearean play uh why do you think we are so apt to to approach evangelism in this very formulaic way that really i mean i'm sure some people have experienced salvation through these types of methods but ultimately on the whole are not that effective why do you think we're drawn to that yeah it's funny uh, when i was writing the book it got me thinking that many of us who went to Bible college, Bible colleges or seminaries or even church seminars where we got trained in evangelism, we got trained by preachers because 20 or 30 years ago, it's preachers who did evangelism. So we got taught how to monologue for 20 minutes. So there were basically only two models of evangelism. One where you got to speak at a public event for 20 minutes, you know, 20 minute Bible talk in the same style as Billy Graham. Yeah. That was one model. And the other model was, you know, the door knocking walk up style of evangelism where you walk up to a total stranger and you might read a tract at them. And that sort of somehow works. You know, there's something about a stranger that you'll never see again for the rest of your life that allows you to do something like that. And they're sometimes happy to talk to you because they know also they won't see you ever again for the rest of their life. And now here's a chance for the two of you to have this very deep and meaningful, vulnerable moment. But then there's this third space in between the Goldilocks space where it's friends and family. And with friends and family, you can't monologue for 20 minutes. That's just inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But also you are going to see these people every day for the rest of your life. So people are just very afraid of becoming vulnerable to friends and family. Mm -hmm. And, and if, it becomes awkward. Well, you know, this jeopardizes a friendship and a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's, I think that's so true because when I became a pastor, I'd, I'd, you know, go through a under in the U S undergraduate Bible education. And I realized I had never really been taught how to, I'd been taught how to do it in an invitation. Um, like you're saying, as opposed to, you know, in, in relation to like a sermon, um, a Bible study, but I had not been taught how to actually lead an individual to Christ or even present the gospel in such a way that would give them the opportunity to say no, even, you know? Um, and so I think that's why like works like this are so important. And, and we know there's a, a million evangelism methods. Um, and so somebody listening, I, I'll go ahead and say like, you don't have, you're not professing a method necessarily. I think much more of a, a mindset which I appreciate, but, but in the, in the first book, evangelism is skeptical world. You lay out this concept of resonance, dissonance and gospel fulfillment that I think sets up the, the, the more layman uh, directed book of, um, you know, not becoming that guy. So when you throw out those three principles in regards to evangelism and just living Christian life in the public sphere of resonance, dissonance and gospel fulfillment, what do you mean by those words? Yeah, resonance means I need to first look for some sort of common ground. 
and say things that the other person agrees with, mm. where I can say things and they would nod their head and go, yep, yep, oh, you're so right, oh, yes, that is me, yes, you got me, you understand me. And it's interesting, like in stand-up comedy, apparently there's this been progression of comedy where we went from the dad jokes, you know, the funny one-liner, punchline-dependent jokes, mm -hmm. to observational, situational comedy, where a comedian just gets up and describes your life back at you, and all you do is you laugh because that comedian has resonated with you. You think, oh, you know what? That is so me. That is me. You've got me. That is my world. And so we need to talk in a way where we find resonance with our audience, with the person we're talking to. And we see the Apostle Paul do that in, in Athens, in Acts 17, where he walks around and says, you have a lot of idols. You have a lot of idols. I can see you're very religious. And at that moment, you can imagine the people in Athens go, yep, you got us. That is me. That is my world. That is my culture. You hear me. You understand me. So we need to resonate. And then we need to move to a point of dissonance where we need to show them this ha moment where they've got to go, ha, I had never thought of that before. Or ha, you know, you're right. I have something missing or I have something clashing in, in my life. And, but we have to earn that moment by resonating first. And we see the Apostle Paul do that in Acts 17, where he goes, oh, but you have an idol to a God whose name you don't know. Like, how can you worship a God whose name you don't know? And at that moment, they were going, ha, you know, you are so right. We've, we've got to know the name of this God. And then, and then we go to this moment of gospel fulfillment where we say, hey, I actually know how to fix that gap, that deficiency that clashing thing in your life and that person is jesus gospel fulfillment for your storyline yeah. and we see the apostle paul do that in Acts 17 he goes you know what i'm going to tell you the name of this god uh just hear me out and then he begins to tell them about jesus so that's what i mean by resonance dissonance gospel fulfillment yeah it's so it's so interesting because you know like when you bring up uh, stand-up comedians uh, me and some of my friends have talked before and we've kind of made the observation in regards to the best stand-up comedians that sometimes they're really just more like philosophers who are funny and they th that observing that you talk about and it's interesting because like what you're saying is christians need to be more like that is be more observant be more in as part of the culture that they're surrounded by. And I think in the world of evangelism, at least sometimes that is uh, antithetical to the way a lot of people do it. What, what were some of the, the things that shaped the way you thought about evangelism that brought you to the point where like you were passionate enough to write books and teach on it? Obviously, I mean, as part of um, the forum there in, in Sydney, you're, you're constantly teaching people how to evangelize and, and of course doing evangelism yourself. But what were some of those formative things that made you see things and think about things the way you do now? Oh, I think the most formative thing was this. I used to teach at a seminary in Sydney called Sydney Missionary and Bible College. And I used to teach theology, preaching, ethics. And then suddenly the professor who used to teach evangelism one of, one of Sydney's best known evangelists, a guy called John Chapman, decided he was going to retire. I think it was into his 60s or 70s. And after 20 years of teaching, he thought, I'm going to retire. And so they dumped the portfolio onto me. At first I said no, and I felt really proud. I thought for the first time as a short little Asian, I was able <laughs> to assert myself and not be a people pleaser. And I said no. But the next day the professor came to my office and said, brother, you are teaching this. And boom, 
he dumped the portfolio on me and it was a 45 hour subject over 15 weeks wow. and his notes were illegible and i thought you know what i'm a blank slate i have to come up with a whole course on evangelism from scratch then i thought what well, this is actually a blessing in disguise because we have now moved into post christendom my professor was teaching in christendom so maybe it is time for a reset reboot button on evangelism and i also happened to be in a seminary it was called city missionary and bible college so we had a big missions department and i started talking to them i thought well how would you evangelize australia like you guys have been missionaries in the middle east in asia in africa in latin america how would you use those same principles of contextualization missiology cultural hermeneutics storytelling and apply them to a post-christian secular western society and i think that became the journey so that was one big cultural moment where i had a, a blank slate as, as blank slate as you know the west can be yeah but i think the other cultural moment and i mentioned this a lot when i get interviewed i'm actually old enough i was at the previous billy graham crusade in sydney in the 1970s and i saw billy graham live and it was billy at his best he did the 20 minute bible talk he gives the appeal the choir gets up they sing just as i am over and over again and billy says if you pray the prayer come down the front and he says his famous line the buses will wait mm -hmm. and in that moment i thought you know what every non-believer that night came on a church bus the non-believer at a billy graham crusade was a churched non-believer then i thought yeah i remember when i went to sunday school in my local baptist church half the kids were non-believers from non-believing parents that's just what non-believers did they were in the church soccer team they went to the church holiday program they're on the church Sunday school program. So one day as an adult, they find themselves on a church bus going to a Billy Graham crusade. But I thought the non-believer today is not in a church bus. They're unchurched. So this is, and we need a new playbook. I think that was my journey. We can't just repeat the methods from 20 years ago, as good as they were, yeah. uh, but this is a new culture, a new cultural moment. Wow. That, I've never, I've never thought of that because you, that just wouldn't happen today. Not that Billy Graham, you know, couldn't be effective in today's world. We know he, he most certainly would be, but, um, but yeah, that cultural shift to where now it almost seems like it, it, many, uh, you know, I, I, I live and work in the Bible belt here in the U S I'm in North Carolina. And so, uh, it's, if there's a, if there's a world's friendliest place to Christianity, I'm in it. But, um, it seems almost like non-believing parents seem like more and more like they're trying to protect their kids from religion and the church sometimes of saying, you know, they don't want them to be a part of that. But I can remember, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in a believing home, at least not at first. And my, my parents relished the idea that I would go to church with my friends because they thought, well, then he's going to be a good kid. Uh, you know, he won't get into trouble and maybe those things will rub. They didn't really care. So yeah, that, what, what do you think is, is the biggest difference between the 21st century non-believing culture and the 20th century? You know, you've, you've said post-Christian, which we, we use that a lot, but, but what do you think the core difference is that makes it to where we have to change the evangelism method? Yeah, there are many, many, many core differences. So mm -hmm. maybe I can highlight one and maybe yeah. there's time I can highlight a few others. But one key difference, as you said, 20 or 30 years ago, a non-believing family would send their kids to church, mm -hmm. hoping that kid will become a good person. Mm -hmm. So they thought being a Christian was about 
being a good person. So we spent all of evangelism 20 or 30 years ago trying to convince people it wasn't about being good. We're not good people. We're bad people. We've just been forgiven. So remember that bumper sticker. We're, we're sinners. We've just been forgiven. We're not good yeah. people. It's not about being good. So, so 99% of evangelism 20 years ago was trying to convince people we're not good people. Mm -hmm. We need forgiveness. Now, in post-Christendom, a non-believer would never send their kids to church in case they become a bad person. Yeah, wow. And so we've become the bad person in the cultural storyline. And so mm -hmm. now 99% of our evangelism begins with us trying to convince people we're not bad people. We're not homophobic. <laughs> wow. We're not racist. We're pro-women's rights. You know, mm -hmm. like, so can you see the wow. shift? That's amazing. So now we're seen as the bad guys, the oppressors in their narrative. We're the ones robbing them of the happy ever mm -hmm. after they're looking for. Whereas before we were the good people in their storyline. Mm -hmm. Wow. So total depravity ruined the best marketing strategy <laughs> that we had going for us. Um, I, yeah, I'd never thought of it that way. But, you know, the Lord works in these in these weird and crazy ways, and he brings us to these cultural moments and cultural seasons like the one we're, that we're in. And I think personally, I think the way that you look at it is uh, very much the way that that more and more Christians need to look at it. And, and in the new book, you outline uh, this this mentality, this approach to see people introduced to the idea of not just Christianity, but, but Jesus. And then of course, as we've, we've talked about the title of just not becoming the guy that, you know, is known as the person who uh, corners people at parties and whatnot, but you start off the book with this idea that Christians need to merge their universes with non-Christians. And, and it's like the perfect start to the book and you even, and I, I heard the Gospel Coalition presentation you gave, and you said something like, sometimes it's called friendship evangelism, and you say, what's wrong, what's wrong with that? <laughs> um, so what, what, when you say for a Christian to become more open to the idea of merging your universe with the non-believers around you, what, what kind of picture is it that you're wanting to paint? Yeah. Oh, where do I, where, where do I begin? Well, let, let me begin here. I, I, I try to explain to people. If I try to tell you a UFO landed in my backyard last night, no one's going to believe me. But if suddenly if 50 of your friends said, oh, wow, me too, a UFO also landed in my backyard last night. Now you think, hey, this is way more believable because it's not just one friend who believes this story. It's 50 of my friends who believe this story. And often we think of evangelism. We think it's I've got to go out by myself and tell my friends about Jesus. Uh, and as brave as that is, as well-meaning as that is, and what we say is true no matter what, what we say is unbelievable because we're the one and only bozo in our friend's life who believes this story. But if they had 50 friends also believing the Jesus story, they're going to go, hey, this is way more believable than what I first thought. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, hey, you know, I, I, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. Oh, hang on, not just me, but the other yeah. apostles. Hang on, not just them, but 500 other people also saw Christ risen from the dead. Now you're going to think this is way more believable. And it's the same with, with our, and, and also Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, hey, you know, do you remember how I lived among you? Now he doesn't say that. He says, do you remember how we lived among you. There was a whole community of believers who lived among 
the Thessalonians. So what they proclaimed, the truth, was way more believable because there was a whole community who lived with the Thessalonians who also believed the story. So say, as Christians, for some reason we've ended up with two universes of friends. We have a Christian universe, a non-Christian universe of friends. When our Christian friends, you know, have a barbecue, we go with them. When our non-Christian friends have a barbecue, we go with them and we keep them separate. But I thought, why don't we deliberately proactively merge our universes so when our christian friends go off somewhere we invite our non-christian friends there mm -hmm. when our non-christians when we have something with our non-christian friends we invite our christian friends along bit by bit merge our universes so that our christians uh, our non-christian friends end up in a community of believers and the story i share in the book is i used to live in an apartment with three other junior doctors and none of them were believers but because they lived in my apartment we, because we shared an apartment. Every time my Christian friends came over, we invited my non-believer apartment friends along. Mm -hmm. When my non-believing apartment friends had something, I invited my Christian friends along and we merged our universes. And after two years, all three started coming along to our church and all three became believers mm -hmm. because they had fallen into a community of believers. Yeah. It, it's so interesting because um you mentioned, you know, some of the missions uh, department and the things that they study. And in missions, we talk about individualistic cultures and collective cultures and Western culture of which, you know, Australia, U.S. and the Western Europe is is very much the hallmark of is we are we're called individualistic cultures. And I and I tell people that um they seem to take offense to it because they, th well, I love my family and I love my church and all these things. But when, when you explain what you just explained, it really does show that how we really think, because you're 100% right. Every time I've ever seen somebody really feel called to evangelism, the church seems to treat that person like they're now the Lone Ranger, like, okay, you go out and then bring those people back. And it, it makes us think that maybe we've missed the mark that the church, um, the community, the church family that you're talking about is the evangelistic vessel for us to be operating in. Why, why do you think, I know this is a big question, of course, because we're talking about a cult, cultural fabric, but, but why is it that we feel so uh, inclined towards, Hey, I'm just going to do it on my own. I'm just going to go off and I'm going to be a missionary by myself. Why do we do that to ourselves? Oh, so big reason is exactly what you said. We are in a Western individualistic culture where we're taught to do whatever we want to do. Mm. Don't worry about what anyone else says. You do you, you be true to yourself. Uh, and I think that's Western individualism where you want to play basketball, fine. I want to play soccer. You know, there's mm -hmm. this feeling I got to choose what I want to do. And we've seen evangelism as this individualistic thing. But, you know, now we're realizing that's always been an illusion. We've been mm -hmm. way less of that than we always thought we were. So I always love how when, when we go to college, we can wear whatever we want. But mm -hmm. what do we do? We end up wearing what everyone else wears around us. So we're much more tribal than we think we are. And I'm listening to so much behavioral psychology right now. And they're saying we would rather be wrong and fit in than be right and not fit in. So as much as we want to say, hey, I am an individual, we're, we're actually not. So, so what that means is, yes, 
we so we sort of picked and chosen the worst bits from West End individualism where I go out solo and evangelize but not recognize that this person belongs to a tribe and until they find a tribe that believes the same thing chances are they're not going to believe what I believe in and part of what we've lost is the church being the village hub and I think yeah. someone said the automobile is what killed that because now we're we have commuter churches rather than rather than community churches mm. and part of it is because we went through that western individualism logic where if i if it's true i'll believe it if i believe it i'll belong if i belong i'll behave and live that way so you know billy graham comes he preached the truth i believe it now they plug me into a church so i belong and there i got disciples so i start living like a christian mm. but now if you think about it it never was that way because that non-believer came to the billy graham crusade event had or already had belonging because they they went to sunday school they were in the church basketball team they were in the church holiday program so they already had belonging and behavior and then they hear the truth so now we're realizing it's much more behavior belonging they believe it and they realize you know what this must be true this must be true and and i think we realize okay that's how belief works people need to find belonging and behavior and then they'll believe it as well. Wow. And this, this idea for, for somebody who's listening and, and, you know, you keep hearing Sam and I talk about post-Christian. I, I really, I really do think more and more people need to look around in this picture that you're painting of the buses waiting outside for these non-believers at the Billy Graham crusade is, is maybe one of the best ways I've heard to explain that that just would not happen anymore. You know, the idea of, of a, a group of non-believing people being willing to ride with these crazy Christians to the arena, to listen to any preacher talk, even if it's Billy Graham. Um, and especially in a celebrity culture now where it seems like unfortunately more and more of the most well-known Christians have very public personal struggles where it is reliant on people doing it in the living rooms and doing it by showing, like you said, we're not, we're not bad people. I'm, you know, uh, I'd love to have you to my house for coffee. I'd love to have you to my house for dinner. Um, and in the book, you, you talk about this coffee dinner gospel idea, uh, and it's to get people to move from secular space into sacred space. But what I think so important is by sacred space, you don't mean a church, at least not initially. And so, so when you in, in, in you yourself devoted very much so to personal evangelism as is, is littered throughout the book, but what have your experiences been like walking through that initial kind of like, Hey, can we just get coffee or tea? Or can we just, you know, I've heard you talk about standing on the front yard with other guys in the neighborhood who are also on their front yards. And so, so for the listener who's, who's listening, they say, I just don't think I have the nerve to even begin this process. What does it look like for you personally? Yeah, so in the book I explain that evangelism is like doing the dishes. You know, at first it looks too hard, too global, too overwhelming. And then my wife says, well, break it down into bite-sized, concrete, achievable steps. Here, begin with a fork. Here, do a cup. And bit by bit, before you know it, you've done the whole mountain of dishes and evangelism's like that. It's overwhelming. How do I even begin the awkward conversation? And I say, relax, break it down in bite-sized steps. Just think of it as coffee, dinner, gospel. Just begin with coffee. Coffee is an easy invitation. It's 
it's safe space, it's public space, it's only 10 or 20 minutes of time, and you're only gonna talk about the weather, the weekend, the sports. It's safe conversation. But once you've done one or two coffees and you've earned social trust and capital, you can invite them for a meal, like a lunch, a dinner, or whatever, and then in a meal, it's a big investment of time, it's one or two hours, and you're moving into more and more private space, maybe even your home, and the more private space someone can come to, the more the conversation can shift from just the weather, the weekend and the sports to values, worldview, and sacred spiritual conversations. So that's what I mean, giving permission for people to talk about the sacred, what's sacred to them in their life, and bit by bit, sacred conversations can talk into turn into gospel conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's coffee, dinner, gospel. And we think, well, how do I bring up Jesus? Well, all we have to do is show genuine curiosity in their life. And I call it the power of the second question. When, someone's, when we ask someone, how was the weekend? They say it was good. And then we can just ask a second question. Well, what did you do? And what was that like? And why was that important to you? And what are you hoping for? And bit by bit, that people will feel safe enough to become more and more vulnerable. And there'll be that moment where maybe they should flip the question back to us. Well, what did you do in the weekend? Why is that important to you? And then we can turn, you know, sacred conversations, spiritual conversations into gospel conversations. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not intimately familiar with the culture in Australia. I would imagine that it's somewhat similar to the U.S. that, uh, as you said, we're just trained from a very early age to make our our faith and our religion, the utmost of private matter to where mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to talk about that. Um, do you find that in this, in this world that's becoming less and less, uh, it's almost like it's becoming less and less religious, but it's still very spiritual. And I'm, I, you know, sometimes we, we create these, um, this caricature of non-believers that they're all new atheists and they all read Dawkins books and things like that. But that's just not the truth. Like, it seems like, more often than not, they're still very spiritual. They, they believe in something. It just might not be Jesus. So do you, do you feel a receptivity when, when you've earned that trust and a person knows, hey, this is Sam. He's not just trying to get me to his church so I can join some cult. Like He really cares about me. Have you found that typically then people become more receptive to talk about their beliefs and, and, and your beliefs? Yeah, definitely. So they even showed surveys for 2020 uh, that especially because of the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, people became like there was this 20 40 60 percent increase in people having spiritual conversations thinking about god more and trying out prayer mm-hmm. uh, even if they have never prayed before so i think that that as the bible puts it god has put eternity in our hearts so we can never suppress that we just have different outlets for it and so if we can be that safe, trusted friend, and in, my, in the book I say, if we can become the de facto chaplain yeah. in their life, mm-hmm. people will feel comfortable coming up to us and beginning that conversation about God's mm-hmm. spirituality and prayer. And picking up what you said earlier, I think for a long time back in Christendom, uh, we got trained that evangelism was trying to invite your friend to church. Like, if I can just yeah. get my friend to come to my church service, that's it. Evangelism is done. And that's what we call event-based evangelism. And there's a great place for it. It's like top-down evangelism. Mm-hmm. But more and more, now that we're post christendom we need a lot more bottom-up evangelism, where it's 
just conversations one-to-one with with your friend yeah and if we can see okay that's actually what i'm trying to do not only trying to invite them to my church because that's way down the funnel way mm-hmm. down the pipeline but just try to be that safe person that they can have a spiritual yeah. conversation with and it's quite a simple sequence you just got to show genuine curiosity so when you ask someone about how their family is their first question will be oh good because that's what you're meant to say it's only polite conversation and then if you just ask the power of the second question to show you genuinely curious mm-hmm. and and how are they going at school yeah. at that moment they might say you know what they're not going well i think they're learning difficulties I, i'm worried she might be getting bullied and at that moment we can be that safe friend that says hey if it's all right my wife and i we pray every night for our friends can we pray for you tonight yeah. And, you know, 99.99%, actually it's 100% of the time, but you're just not allowed to say 100%. But 100% of the time, they will say, oh, that would be wonderful. Please, could you? So we can just begin there and just be that safe, trusted friend that Mm -hmm. they can have spiritual, sacred, vulnerable conversations with. Yeah. You you obviously have this... um this, I don't know if it's natural, if you feel like it's natural, but it seems natural, this, this ability to really listen to people. And it, and I don't know, I mean, I know you, you still are a medical doctor. Um, and you know, your time in the, what I would call the marketplace or the quote unquote real world certainly prepared you for a life of evangelism, but you place a high emphasis on this, what you call the art of listening. And it really is truly an art, unfortunately, in a smartphone world where we have to remind ourselves that there are people in the room with us, uh, this this ability to really internalize and listen and not just listen to respond, not just listen to argue, but listen for the sake of of listening. And and you um, you illustrate this idea of this hear, understand and feel. And I've heard you compare it to, to marriage and things like that um, as unfortunately we are having to relearn how to listen and an apologetics filled Christianity where we're, where we're sort of taught de facto listen so that I can pick up this keyword. And he said that. So then I, I counter with this argument. What would you say to Christians who really just say, you know what? I just want to get better at listening to my friends and family who might be hurting. Um, and I'm not interested in playing apologetics chess with them or, or you know, anything like that. What, what would be your encouragement to, to people who are just trying to get better at listening? Yeah, I think the key moment for me was when I went to a counselor and I saw what she did to me. She listened to me for maybe 90% of the session. And for the first time I felt understood. And that's why, and, and then I, I was happy to become vulnerable and then I was hanging on to whatever word of advice she could give me in return. And then that's when I, that's why in the book I, I, I say we should learn to evangelize, not like preachers, because that's how we got taught 20, 30 years ago in Christendom, but evangelize like a counselor. Because a counselor takes genuine interest, they ask questions to hear, understand, and feel, and empathize, and feel the emotion of what we're feeling. And at that moment, they've earned the trust to, to help us find you know what you know mm-hmm. the the solution to what we're looking for mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting like, I, I actually trained as a medical doctor I, I work as a medical doctor we actually never got trained in the art of listening because for us yeah. it's like you've learned five years of this it's all about information do the information give the information so we never got taught how to listen then i went to bible college we got trained as preachers we never got trained on how to listen either but there were one or two key 
moments in my life. I think one was when I was looking for advice from friends on whether to stay in full-time medicine or go into a full-time Christian ministry. And five Christian friends, good, well-meaning Christian friends, just monologued at me, gave me their advice. And I walked away thinking, I don't know why, but that was profoundly unhelpful. <laughs> I asked for advice, but that was unhelpful. It wasn't what I was looking for. And then there's another friend, he was trained as a chaplain. And I said to him, I could stay in full-time medicine. And he just looked at me and said, you could, couldn't you? And just with that one question, I knew I didn't want to stay in full-time Christian, uh, in full-time medicine. So mm -hmm. it's funny how a question led me to what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And then now New Testament, I, I just went to this evangelism conference in Wheaton called Amplify last year mm -hmm. online. And almost every speaker was starting to quote the stat that Jesus asked 300 questions. He, he got asked 200 questions, but he only gave the answer eight times. He usually answered with another question, you know, like, by what authority do you do these things? I don't know. By what authority does John the Baptist do his things? Mm -hmm. You know, should we pay taxes or not? I don't know. Who, whose head mm -hmm. do you see on this coin? And I know there's this. So anyway, so just, oh, I'll, I'll share this story. There's this UK politician who lost his job because he gave, because of his answer to a question on, on mm -hmm. sex and morality, yeah. you know, is this a sin? And he looks back now and says, I didn't have to answer that question. I could have answered with, I don't know, what do you mean by the word sin? Mm -hmm. So somehow we've, yeah. we've, we've always thought I had to say something. I have to, yeah. like I said, I'm listening to respond. I'm listening to argue. How about I just listen to listen to understand where, where they're coming from? Yeah. I, I think that that is, is really something that, like you said, it's funny because doctors are often i'd say you represent the two demographics that are accused of not listening more yeah, than any guilty, demographic guilty well, well i mean and, and certainly i am too as a, as a pastor and, and, a, and a teacher because we do spend most of our time monologuing and we you know there's there's certainly appropriate avenues for the for the lecture for the for the the download as you said but 99% of life is communal, or at least it should be. And so, yeah, maybe they should do more uh, classes on that in, in Bible school, maybe even medical school too, because the thing, you know, the interesting thing too, for a listener who's saying, you know, is this really that important? It's like, think of your favorite doctor, think of your favorite pastor, think of your favorite friend. They're the ones who actually, you, you know, you felt like they gave you the time of day and they listened to you. And so I would suppose like, I mean, if we, if we really want to see the gospel, uh, uh, grow in, in, in some of these people's lives to think that we could do it with a 45 minute sermon alone is, is pretty, pretty foolish. Um, but before, before I let you go, my favorite, my favorite part of the way that you illustrate evangelism and, and this, this whole mentality and outlook that you have is this idea that part of the reason why some of our old methods have become less effective is because culture, secular culture um, has learned to tell a better story than we have. And for people who accurately say that as Christians, we represent the greatest story ever told um, and, the, and the most miraculous thing that's ever happened in all of human history, we're pretty bad at telling the story. We're pretty bad at making it seem like something that somebody would want to hear. Um, and so 
kind of what 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 do you think the story should be when we're trying you know if when we if we get from if we do we have coffee and then we have dinner and then we get to that gospel and somebody says okay sam uh what what do you think what do you what, how do you see the world what does it matter to you like what's the story you want to tell your neighbors and friends when they give you that opportunity yeah so the story i want to begin with is the story that they're living by i say you know what this is what we've been told uh you know we're just atoms and molecules we're just another species of life on this planet we're just a small blip in the timeline of the universe. There's an eternity behind us, an eternity in front of us, but we're just a small blip. Uh, you know what? The universe doesn't care. We can pretend it does. Mm -hmm. So in the end, we've just got to do what it takes to make us happy. I've got to create my own purpose. But you know what? We are more miserable than ever. Like statistics show, yeah. we, we have more depression, more anxiety, more stress than any generation before us and yet we're more materially wealthy we're more healthy we live longer we have free wi-fi in mcdonald's <laughs> and starbucks but yeah. we're more miserable than ever before because we don't know why we're here and where we're going we know what we're free from the authority of our parents and teachers and religious figures but we don't know what we're free for mm -hmm. but what if there's another story a better story a beautiful story and it says there's a god who loves you he made you but he also saves you because we're not the people we pretend to be we're not the people he needs us to be but he sent us jesus both to die for us and now to live for us and we can live for him as he lives for us and if we're loyal to jesus we can be part of team jesus where we have belonging purpose direction freedom and hope and every day is a day where we can bring his love his mercy his justice on this planet because these things really do matter and these things really do exist so suddenly you realize hey that's a better story and that's <laughs> one i can tell my friends yeah and in the idea too of just make jesus the central figure seems yeah. to be a prevailing thought like we get too much wrapped up in um, you know, saying, Hey, I know you're probably going to object to some of the things in the old Testament or some of the things that Paul said. So here's my little presentation about that. And, and you, you seem to say like, no, like let them, let the Holy spirit deal with that stuff. Let, like, let's get that. Let's introduce them to Jesus first, because, um, I, I watched a video of you and Glenn Scrivener talking about, um, I think the topic was, has Christian or has religion and has Christianity made the world worse. And, the two of you just had this profound thought where you said, you know, if you have someone just read the gospels and just read the teachings of Jesus, and then you ask them, Hey, if there's more of that in the world, is the world going to get better? The answer would certainly 100% of the time be yes. Nobody can look at the life of Jesus and say that that is a bad prescription for, for the world. And so, so how then, you know, because because like you said, we don't want to be that guy. We don't want to be the person that says, oh, gosh, Sam's coming down the street. He's going to stop and talk to me about Jesus. But but at the same time, like, how can we as best as we know how just like make sure that our neighbors um, get that Jesus, get that Jesus story, um, especially if we're given that gospel fulfillment um, moment with them like what what i guess what i'd say even so is make it simpler for you to answer is like you know 
are there stories in mind that that you just see people's eyes light up when they say, "Gosh, no one ever told me about that about Jesus. I've never met that Jesus." Like, what what would your encouragement and advice be to people who say, "I want to introduce people to Jesus"? Yeah, and I think that's it. Just introduce people to Jesus. So every now and then, we you could say, you know what? This reminds me of a story yeah. about Jesus. Just something like that. You can slip that mm. in the conversation, you know, because it totally makes sense in the in the sequence of that conversation. Or what I work for City Bible Forum. What we love to do is just get people to sit down and read the Bible together. Hey, let's just read the Gospels together. Or what I used to do with some missionary friends is they do what's called gospel storytelling. And Christine Dillon's got a whole book on that, on how to tell the gospel through story, where you just have a story about Jesus that you retell. And that's actually what I I usually do. And in the book, I share that my favorite go-to story is Jesus turning water into wine mm-hmm. because no one has any, well, no one has any reference for that. What do you do yeah. with a guy who turns water into wine at a party where everyone's drunk too much, but he mm-hmm. doesn't just give you wine, but too much wine and it's amazing wine. Like, yeah. Why would he do that? And I usually say to people, well, it's to show there are many reasons, but one main reason is Jesus trying to give you a picture of what life with him would be like both in this life and the life to come. It'll be a full life, a fulfilled life, what the Bible calls eternal life. So just something like that. And the people mm-hmm. go, huh, tell me, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't have to preach mm-hmm. at them. You know, they've just heard a story that, 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 that will win their imagination. Mm-hmm. And we can often just trust the power yeah. of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe become less infatuated with winning people to our particular theology or our particular denomination or our particular style of worship, but instead just say like, Hey, the one thing that really is going to change your life is just Jesus. And then all these other things are sort of like, as we would say, icing on the cake. So, um, man, Sam, I'm so, I'm so encouraged by the way that you do this because I think I know I've had methods and, you know, scripts and things like that in my past, and it always seems like something's missing. And I think the way you look at it is refreshing. Um, we know it's it's not new. I mean, this is really what we see in Acts and and in in so many other people throughout church history. But but it's it's new and necessary for today. And for someone listening, um, please go get Sam's book, the newest one, or or um, uh, Evangelism for a Skeptical World, which is a little bit more of an in depth read, but certainly worth it, whether you're an academic or not. Um, Sam, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your, just the way that you approach this topic, which has become sort of like a footnote for many people, but for you, obviously, is part of just who you are and who you, what you bleed out into the world. So I, I really appreciate your time and wisdom today. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me.